listening to Goal Line Extended on the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network. What's going on, everyone? Today is Tuesday, April 20, and I am your host, Ryan Holzbus, and you are watching or listening to Goal Line Extended on the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network, available on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a rather large show planned for today, and frankly, all week to be that to be like matter of fact we have a big week planned as the PLO college draft is next Monday April 26th less than a week from today we'll watch this weekend as some of the most talented players in the country will have their last chance to showcase what they got before Monday night's draft beginning on Thursday night with Notre Dame and Duke a rematch of Notre Dame's win just over a week ago 13 to 8 was the final the Irish will travel to Durham this time but a handful of high profile names headlining this upcoming draft playing in that one alone and all weekend. Flash's Jordan Johnson will be joining me in a moment to look ahead to Thursday night's game and look back at an absolutely exciting weekend in college across that featured a handful of upsets, but one of the last weekends of the regular season for most teams as we approach May and the PLL college draft on Monday. And we here at Lacrosse Flash and Goal Line Extended are going to be getting you ready for what you should be watching for as this draft unfolds. Some of the names to keep an eye on what are these head coaches thinking as they look up and down the draft board today after Jordan and I look back at the weekend in college lacrosse, lacrosse insider and flash analyst Dan Arestia will be joining me and we'll be going going over the final edition of his college draft big board and all the top names to watch as this draft unfolds, especially over those first few rounds and some possible team destinations as the draft moves along. And then to close out today's show, Water Dogs head coach Andy Copeland will be joining me here on GLE, former Fairfield head coach for a number of years and now the head coach for the Water Dogs in their inaugural season in 2020 at the PLL bubble in Utah. And he holds the second overall pick in Monday night's college draft, at least as of Tuesday, April 20. Hopefully he gives us somewhat of an idea of what his plan is with that number two pick. And we'll look back or we'll look ahead, excuse me, to the 2021 season, some of the moves that he's made already this offseason. He acquired attackman Ryan Brown. That was a huge get for him and his team as he looks to reload heading into the 2021 season. And then, like I said, we have a very busy week as we get set for this draft. Coach Copeland will be joining me today, Water Dogs head coach. And then on Friday's show, I'll be joined separately by two more PLL head coaches. They will remain anonymous for now. And then on Monday, the day of the draft, we will be having our 2021 PLL college draft special. Two more head coaches will be coming onto the show as we prepare for Monday night, 10.30 p.m. Eastern time, 7.30 p.m. Pacific on Peacock. And then on Friday, we'll be looking at some team needs heading into the draft. Not that these, team really, these teams really have any glaring needs, but as we've been saying the last few weeks, some teams have some holes that, if filled, will take them to that next level, especially at the top of the draft. We'll look about. Uh, we'll talk about some of those names that are being thrown around uh, to go early, and then on Monday night's draft special, we will be laying out our goal line extended mock draft and giving our final thoughts ahead of Ben Rubier's first overall selection. A big week as we look ahead to Monday night. Be sure to check out LacrosseFlash.com for all the latest and a lot of content set to go up there over the next few days. Follow Goal Line Extended at GL Extended and Lacrosse Flash on Instagram and Twitter so you don't miss any of it. But let's get today's show started. Jordan Johnson, welcome to GLE, my friend. Nice to see you again, buddy. Had a packed week college across. Packed week of PLL draft debates. Um, certainly, we're heading down the home stretch, getting ready for the conference tournaments and the tournaments. I'm excited, man. Oh, absolutely. It is heating up here over the last few weeks. For the second time this season, though, in overtime, 
Joe Robertson manages to find the back of the net to seal it for the Blue Devils. It was his second goal of the game to go along with three assists, but Duke rebounds after loss to Notre Dame last week. They come back after being down for most of this game. 13-12 to 12 was the final. Before we get to the final seconds of regulation, because I know you want to mention that, Duke getting this win. O'Neal and Sowers both put up hat-tricks. Very important as they head into these final two tests of the regular season. What did you like from Duke as they get set to take on Notre Dame on Thursday? I really liked the team. They really played their most complete game as a team, I think, all year. Defensively, JT Giles Harris probably had one of his best games of the year. You talked about Sowers and O'Neal right right there. Brennan O'Neal, man, he's just a stud. I mean, I can't say that how many times. And him and Sowers together has come together. It's finally starting to have that click. I know a lot of people are waiting for Sowers to heat up, still are waiting for Sowers to heat up. Look, he's not going to put up your monster numbers, I don't think, unless we get into a tournament where he really turns clutch. But him and O'Neal, you bring in the Kai Montgomery, you talked about Joe Robertson. They're finally starting to get clicking. I don't – I know earlier – in the year, I said that there was Duke and everybody else. As Notre Dame showed, they can beat Duke. I think Duke is beatable, but at the same time, I think this Duke team is starting to hit the right notes, and that's a good thing considering the time of year it is as they head into the ACC tournament um, where, look, it's going to be like it has been all year. It's going to be full of these one-goal games. It's going to be competitive. And Duke's going to have to put out their best effort that we've really seen all year down here, down the stretch as they play Notre Dame again. And then you get the ACC tournament. They're going to have to play their best ball. It's time to – and against Virginia, they did that. Big win for Duke as they get ready for a regular season rematch with Notre Dame, who is off this weekend. But likewise, just as tough – on the other side, if you're Virginia, and it's it's even harder when what looked like the game-winning goal at the end of regulation gets waved off for a crease violation. But UVA got right back to it this past Saturday. They beat Utah at home, 18-11, to the final. And then some bright spots for UVA over those two games. Petey LaSala, 18 for 27 in Thursday's loss, 20 of 26 on Saturday at the faceoff X, continuing to perform like one of the top draw guys in the league. The offense starting to pick it up here down the stretch as well. Looking ahead to their final game of the season, a conference rematch with Syracuse. What's the scout here on UVA? Uh, for UVA, look, I mean, you're going to watch that Syracuse film against UNC, and I don't know, you can't get, you can't put too much stock into it. I'm going to say that because you're going to look at that film and be like, huh. But I know one thing, Syracuse is going to come out mad, fired up. Everybody's going to be dishing them this week, and rightfully so. Um and UVA is going to be on point because I don't know about you, but I watched that first quarter against Utah, and they had a case of the Saturday scaries coming off the game against Duke. Um, I don't think Lars is going to have them like that <clears throat> against Syracuse. Um, actually, wouldn't be wouldn't surprise me if they came out firing out of the gates, um, just trying to take advantage of a Syracuse team that Frank that frankly to put it is down right now and. I, you know, we're obviously not on their campus. We're not around their team, but I frankly wonder what is kind of the morale. Is it, all right, next ACC game, or is it kind of, all right, we had this bad loss. Is it going to, is that going to spoil, spoil, excuse me, is that going to spill over into the Virginia game? I mean, and look, Syracuse has all the motivation. They beat Virginia, and they need to, they need this game to prove themselves. Like, 
a lot of people gave me and Liam Kelly flack for not putting them in the tournament in our mock tournament. And really, from my perspective, it wasn't even a knock on them. It was just more so I don't see the committee putting five ACC teams in the tournament. And then Syracuse to have that performance against UNC kind of just gave me more of a reason to not put them in the tournament. And they need to show they need to show out. And in my opinion, in order for them to make the tournament right now, they need to go on a run and win the conference tournament. I don't know if they're gonna I can't sit here and say right now that the committee is gonna justify putting them in the tournament right now unless they win the conference tournament. And I don't even th- I think even the ACC, they excuse my uh, kind of math here because I just remembered because they don't get an automatic qual- qualifier because um, they don't have the six teams. But, yeah, I just don't see the committee putting them in the tournament unless they really have a decent run here down the stretch. And two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I probably would have said, yeah, five ACC teams, Syracuse belongs there. But they just laid an egg against UNC. And I don't know. I can't. The way that they are playing right now, based on the eye test, is not good. Um, so I I would expect UVA to win this game because I think Lars is – they beat uh, Utah, but let's be real. That Utah team came out and lit a fire under them. And that was one of those – it's a win, but – it, Lars is probably treating that like like a loss, like, come on. And so I would expect UVA to win this game. Um, like I said, it's not really a knock on Syracuse. I'm just really high on UVA right now. I think UVA, Duke, and UNC are kind of those three teams that are hitting their stride right now. Um, and, of course, Notre Dame is right there at the top of the conference, and we'll see how they fare against Duke. Um, but I like UVA in this game, man. UVA coming off a tough loss to Duke, obviously that went over uh, Utah, and then Syracuse with their uh, big loss to, to UNC, a 21-9 to beating from the North Carolina Tar Heels. And, and what was on national television, just a tough game really to watch. If you're Syracuse, they now fall to 5-4 and four on the season, 1-3 and three in conference play with UVA this weekend. That is Syracuse. They have UVA this weekend, Notre Dame next weekend to close out the regular season, both on the road. And as you're saying, I mean, mathematically, they could finish under 500 at 5-6 and six going into uh, the ACC tournament. Again, we don't know how that all works, if they will get that automatic qualifier into that conference tournament. You left them off your 16, though, last week, as you were saying before, and then they put this one out there. Not great from the Orange. And in this one against North Carolina, absolutely beat up on the defensive end. But what's going uh, wrong right now, really, for Syracuse? They don't have a number one guy defensively. And it's not even, like, a talent thing for me because all those guys are talented. And I really hate the fact that I have to go to this take. Um, It's not a Desco take, but it's a recruiting thing. Like, with all due respect, if there's if anybody's seat is hot in Syracuse, it might be Leland Rogers. And this is no disrespect to him as a man. I don't know him. He probably is a great man, a great coach. But when you look at the past defensive performances, really, of Syracuse all year, you say there's no alpha in the room. You know, you can point to Duke and a guy like JT Giles Harris. You can point to Virginia and be like Jared Connors. You can point to Maryland with Nick Grill um, and Makar. Um, Syracuse just doesn't have an alpha on defense. And 
They have great shorties. They have a great offense. They have a championship offense, as a matter of fact, I believe. Um, but they just don't have a pole. That's the number one. I, and then you see the residual effects of that. Um, slides not going where they're supposed to. Nobody's really communicating. Wide open shooters, as you saw against UNC. I mean, that's frank. You'd frankly need an alpha, and it's that's not all that those communication too. That all goes just to the communication point of it as well. It's just it's not there. Exactly, and frankly, it's not on any of the guys. It's not a knock on any of those guys. It's I. I think you you, you got to recruit better. I mean, they have this kid Billy Dewan. He's not coming in for another couple years. You know. So, I don't know, man. Um, that's really it for their de- – I think their defense is holding them back because offensively they are a championship team, but that defense is holding them back. And, man, like I'd love to see them play – their defense give them at least an average performance to go with that offense because you and I both know how scary that offense is and – with Hiltz, Tremboli, who you you name it, that offense can win them a championship. But the defense is what's making them look like an average team versus a top five team. That's just plain and simple, man. The struggles on the defensive end for Syracuse in front of goalie Drake Porter. Dan Arestia's number one goalie heading into the college draft. Those struggles continue as they're highlighted in the Dome on Saturday. 16 saves for Porter as he faced a whopping 37 shots. 12 different goal scorers for the Tar Heels, including a six-assist eight-point day for Mr. Chris Gray, who is now 11 points ahead of Maryland's Jared Bernhardt for the most points in college across this season. Bernhardt being the current Tawaraton frontrunner. But we're saying this is a really tough loss for Syracuse. This is a huge win for Notre Dame. Stepping on the gas early, not coming off of it. Head coach Joe Bresci called it the first complete game they've played all year. I mean, 21 goals. That that's, sounds like a complete game to me. And that's got to be a good feeling as you come down the regular season home stretch. On Sunday, you've got Notre Dame at home after they play Duke on Thursday night. And then on next Sunday, uh, Duke at home in a rematch of that overtime loss on April 1st. But this win, huge for UNC. Oh, yeah, for sure. I never expected UNC to kind of hit that wall. That Duke game, if they hit a wall, it was that Duke game. But honestly, they could have easily won that game. Uh, you talk about Chris Gray, Nikki Solomon, Tanner Cook, man. Like, that team is rolling. I would expect that team to give Duke and Notre Dame a run for its money. Um, they frankly might be, when it's all said and done, they frankly might be a number one seed in the tournament. Wouldn't surprise me. Um yeah, I really have nothing negative to say. I mean, the face-off unit from top to bottom, the, the two-man face-off unit has proved them well. No really hiccups. I mean, you face Jake Nazo. Uh, Jake Nazo is one of the best in the country right now. That's only the really hiccup. Uh, defensively, UNC is so technically sound on defense. You don't see, you rarely see them miss in techniques. You rarely see wide wide open shooters. You see guys playing with each other, communicating well. Um, from top to bottom, I really love UNC right now. Um, they're right up there with Duke, Notre Dame, and Maryland for me. UNC will be hosting Notre Dame next Sunday. We'll be talking much more about that game on Friday's show. And Syracuse, as we said before, will be traveling to Virginia in what will be UVA's final regular season game on the schedule, sitting at 10-3, and 2-3. In conference, we'll also be looking ahead to the other games to look forward to 
this weekend. Let's look at another great game that we got hand-delivered this weekend over in our nation's capital. The number 11 team in the country, the Georgetown Hoyas, took down the Denver Pioneers in overtime in their rematch of Denver's 13-7 home win back in March. A huge conference win that puts Georgetown back in front of the Big East. 11-10 the final. Declan McDermott with the game winner. A lot of impressive things from Georgetown here on the uh, offensive and defensive end, but starting in the middle of the field, James Riley at the faceoff X, holding TD Erland and Alice Sathakis to a combined 8 of 24, two of the best in the game. That's a good start if you're trying to pull off an upset win over the number six team in the country. Love that from uh, James Riley. Great performance. Georgetown was the team. We were wondering what could they do around Caraway. Um, we knew their defense was going to be great as they, they got off to that early season's hot start defensively. And they're starting to figure out what, who their guys are around uh, Caraway. You talk about Declan McDermott so clutch. Um, they've really just started to figure out, figure it out. And frankly, I can't wait for the Big East tournament because I think it's a two-team race right now. Uh, Marquette's still hanging around there, but I really do love Georgetown right now. With that being said, though, I don't expect TD Earl and Alex Bakovis to have a bad game like that anymore. Um, frankly, I think that James Riley just got the best of them, and it was his day, and it's not a knock on both of those guys. He just had himself a day. I would expect T.D. Earl and Alex Nefakovic. I know I'm going to butcher that name so many times, uh, but I would expect them to get right back in the form, and frankly, in the tournament, I expect them to make noise. Um, even though I'm really high on Georgetown right now as far as the Big East is concerned, I really like Denver going forward as they head into the tournament. Georgetown and Denver, definitely those top two teams in the Big East. But again, we cannot forget about Marquette. Marquette always seems to do something crazy when it comes uh, conference time. But Denver falling from number six in the country to number nine, not too far as we expected. We didn't think they were going to fall too far after that loss. But the Pioneers now nine and three heading into their final regular season game of the weekend against St. John's. Georgetown at nine and one will host Providence on Saturday and then head to Loyola next weekend for what will be their toughest out of conference game of the season. Keep that in mind. Two of Denver's three losses coming on that February trip that out to Carolina. Expect these two teams to meet again as we get conference tournaments underway. Yeah. Is that Loyola game looking tough now? <laughs> Um, not not as tough, I think, as as it was looking. But if you look at the rest of Georgetown's schedule, definitely their toughest game uh, coming up here out of the conference. Let's head over to the Big Ten. A number eight Rutgers. They handled Johns Hopkins 17 to 11. The final, a tight game throughout, tied in the third quarter. But a six goal Rutgers run ended any hopes of a Hopkins upset. Adam Charlembeides led the way for the Scarlet Knights. Six goals. Two assists. He was followed by Connor Kirst, who had four goals and two assists. Rutgers securing their spot as the number two team in the Big Ten ahead of their regular season finale at Michigan. The number one team in the country, Maryland, they took care of Ohio State on Sunday, 18-8. to The final score, Jared Bernhardt, continued to be phenomenal. Six goals and an assist in a routine win for Maryland. What did you take away uh, from this win? I love the goalie goal uh, led by Logan McNeigh. First of all, that's just a sight to see. Um, Maryland, no, no surprises here. I expect them to roll over Ohio State. Jarrett Bernhardt is the front runner for the Tourton, as he rightfully should be. He took over this game himself. Um, all the arguments for him in the PLL college draft being the number one pick. Um, I frankly don't blame people who want to throw him in that discussion. I'm frank, I'm a Sowers guy. I think Sowers is the number one guy, but 
Jared Bernhardt continues to prove uh, every weekend that he should be in the conversation at least. Uh, Maryland defensively, I've loved them all year with Maycar, Nick Grill. Don't forget about Alex Smith, the shorty, who is one of the best and most underrated in the country, in my opinion. Um, if I do have a hot seat or somebody that's going out there, it is ins the inside lacrosse poll. No, no disrespect to anybody, and I usually don't have these opinions on these polls. I kind of mentioned it on Twitter this year, or I'm sorry, on Twitter this morning. How in the world is Ohio State number 16? They went from 16 to 14 after a loss to Rutgers. Keep them on. Tell me, who is their marquee win this year, Ryan? Tell, who is who is the marquee win? Off the top of my head, they don't have a marquee win. Johns Hopkins, Michigan. Exactly. No, no win over here, Rutgers, no win over Maryland, no tight game with either of those two. And here's my, and here's my argument, too. With that, and I like I said, these polls are so subjective. But people are using the same argument of the weak Big Ten conference to hold Maryland back and say that Maryland is not going to do anything in the tournament. They're using this same argument as a reason to not give Jared Bernhardt the towards on. But yet you have Ohio State at 16, and they had him at 14 a couple weeks ago with four losses, and now you're at five. Ryan, tell me, if this ain't Power 5 bias or whatever, and this is no disrespect to all the media out there, all the media guys out there that participate in this poll, and Ohio State is a good team, but you cannot tell me that they are in the top 20 right now. I mean, look at who all the teams that got votes here. I could make an argument for Towson. I can make the argument for Vermont. You already know I'm going to make the argument for my school, UMBC. You, I'd even be acceptable with throwing Loyola in there, even though they're on a little slide. But come on, guys. Come on. You know Ohio State is not a top 20 team right now. They win the conference tournament? Have at it. They finish above 500 this year after the tournament's done? Have at it. Throw them in there. Don't blame you. But – Come on, guys. I so we all lack in some. Sometimes we don't watch as much film as we should. We all we've all been there. But come on, turn the tape on. <laughs> you you see it. I don't. Ohio Tell State, me where there's a marquee win. Ohio State definitely struggling here. They don't have that marquee win, but definitely struggling here. They're looking like the number three seed heading into this Big Ten tournament. So we will see what Ohio State can do here down the stretch. But Maryland, to close out the regular season, they will have Johns Hopkins, a big rivalry game that we look forward to every year. Hopefully Hopkins can make it interesting this time around. And then the most exciting game in the Big Ten this past weekend came from the two teams at the bottom of the conference, as you're saying, the two teams that really – Ohio State beat, you could you could say. Penn State and Michigan jockeying here for seeding ahead of the Big Ten tournament. Penn State able to avenge their early season loss and get that win at home in overtime, 14-13. to 13. Mac O'Keefe with the overtime game winner, just a piece of his six-goal, two-assist outing. He also made history with goal number 213, making him the all-time NCAA D1 leader in goals scored. And that number will continue to climb. Big day for Penn State, big day for O'Keefe, and the Nittany Lions could be hosting a first-round tournament game as they now sit solely in fourth in the Big Ten. Congrats to Mac O'Keefe for setting the record. And honestly, with Penn State, I love that they're starting to, quote-unquote, heat up a little bit. I think it's, like I said, right now it's a little bit too little too late, but I love that Mac O'Keefe is starting to get on this tear that he is. And who knows? 
maybe they could pull an upset against Maryland in the Big Ten tournament. I, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, they they can beat they can certainly beat a Rutgers or an Ohio State. Um, I don't think the gap is as big as everybody thinks it is from that sense. I know they just got spanked by Rutgers um, a couple weeks ago, but look, anything can happen in these tournaments. And trust you, believe me, Jeff Tambroni is the coach that I would want if my team was the underdog in the tournament. I would want Jeff Tambroni. He would get he would get my team ready, and they might make some noise. I mean, I wouldn't count them out. I, you know, we can point to the other teams at the bottom: Michigan, Johns Hopkins. I think we, it's safe to say that they may not make as much noise in the tournament. Um, but I can uh, – Penn State is a team that's going to be interesting to watch over the couple weeks here with their next game and then the, as they move into the first round of the tournament. It seems like they have the firepower to make something happen is, is what it seems like. Obviously, with Mac O'Keefe, it seems like they have that uh, that firepower. Penn State heading to Ohio State next weekend in their season finale. We'll see how many more goals Mac O'Keefe can pile on as he looks to close his storied career and look ahead to Monday night as he should be hearing his name called fairly early. The Patriot League also wrapping up their regular season play as we approach the end of April. Lehigh, after this weekend, is up to the number six team by inside lacrosse. They played, uh, they played twice this weekend, both times against conference rival Lafayette. On Friday, Lehigh got the win 22-8, to and they handled business on Sunday. However, in a much tighter game, 14-11, to the final. But Lehigh continues to roll as they look to wrap up their regular season with a zero in the loss column. And then among the other ranked Patriot League teams, number 10 Army took down Boston University 14-8, to putting Army now a half game ahead of Boston in the Patriot League standings with two weeks left. In the regular season, they will have a much-anticipated matchup this weekend with Navy, who is back in the inside lacrosse top 20. Now up to number 19, we'll have that game this weekend. But Navy coming off a 14-12 to win over number 14, Loyola, who is now unranked, jockeying here for position here as we approach May. But a huge win for Navy to keep them in this Patriot League conversation. Oh, yeah. I'm, I love Christian Daniel from Navy. That kid just plays so hard, man. He scored – Scoring the game winner against Loyola um, all year. He's kind of just been their guy on offense. Um, I'm a huge fan of his. I love the way he plays the game, just inside and out. A guy who can go both ways, too, if you need him to. He rides hard. Uh, he does just about everything. He's got nobody's talking about. And, I mean, I get it. Lehigh and Army are at the top of the Patriot League. And, frankly, Navy just hasn't played a lot of lacrosse here this year, unfortunately, because of uh, the whole COVID situation. But um, Army's got to be on upset watch here because this is a Navy team that's starting to figure themselves out. Um, they needed kind of a couple weeks to do that coming off their COVID pause. Um, I still would expect Army to win this game, but I would definitely put them on upset alert. Army and Navy going at it this weekend. Definitely going to see how, uh, you know, a big Patriot League game here as we come towards the end of the season. Elsewhere in college across Richmond took down Jacksonville, uh, Jacksonville, excuse me, 14 to seven to take sole control of the top spot in the SoCon. What's becoming a tight CAA race, Delaware with the overtime win over Hallstra. Delaware now the top team in the conference. And in the America East, Stony Brook stays hot, defeats Big Hampton 18-11. UMBC, your school, with a 12-7 win over UMass Lowell to stay right there in that race as well. And then a highly anticipated game that we were looking forward to in the Americas. Vermont and Albany 
that game was postponed as America East Lacrosse heats up here down the stretch. Again, we'll be back on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. But, Jordan, some of those Patriot League, CAA, America East games that I just glossed over, what stuck out to you uh, for some of the top teams in the country out of those conferences and as we approach you know, this back half of the season? Uh, Towson and Albany are two teams who really watch. Towson out of the CAA getting hot with the wins over UMass and Hofstra. Uh, Sean Natalin, I think I've mentioned, I've told this story before, just how much they've had to overcome as a team with him with the Hopkins stuff and then with the uh, recruiting stuff with the suspension and everything. Uh, they're getting hot. And, I mean, frankly, we saw – I don't know if this is going to be 2016 Towson, you know, Final Four, but they win the CAA. They're in the tournament, man. And you get to that dance and anything can happen. Um I just love Kobe Smith, who is the best LSM in the country. I believe, no offense to Jared Connors, I just think Kobe Smith gets overlooked a little bit. Um, and I love what they are really doing, especially defensively. Uh, that's a team that plays hard defensively. They they almost play as scrappy as some of the American East teams, to be frankly honest with you. And that's the thing about these mid-major conferences, is they're going to give you a scrap fight. Um and Towson's just doing that. And then I also talk about Albany. Uh, Ron John might be my favorite player to watch just because he's like he's like a guy like Connor Kurtz who can go both ways. Uh, I think he's a better offensive player as a midfielder, but he certainly has the ability to go down and play solid defense when you need him to. Uh, Jacob Patterson is a guy that nobody's talking about. He's, he's been one of the best scorers in college across this year. And frankly, they're getting all the wins that they need to be. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't get to see them play against Vermont. Uh, they beat UMBC pretty good when they had that fourth quarter run that was fueled by Ron John himself. Um, I could have given them all the credit in the world. So they're a team that can get hot. Um, the America East tournament's going to be a barn burner with all these teams in there. And so is the CAA. Um if I had to pick one, I'm not going to choose the America East right now just because you already know like where my kind of allegiances are. Um, but if I had to pick somebody to come out of the CAA, I still think uh, it could be UMass right now. But I wouldn't sleep on Hofstra and Towson. Big stuff coming up here for the CAA, for the Patriot League, for the America East, obviously Big Ten ACC, as we come down to the end of the College Cross regular season. Jordan, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Another big weekend of College Lacrosse coming up, and then obviously last weekend we had a, a great weekend of games as well. Again, we will be back on Friday to look ahead to all of it. Flashes, Dan Arrestio will be joining me next as we get set for the 2021 PLL College Draft. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Welcome back to the show. Tuesday, April 20. Glad to have you with us, whether you are currently watching or listening to Goal Line Extended. We are available on YouTube. It's also available on whatever platform uh, that you listen to your podcast. Also, check out lacrosseflash.com for all of our shows and latest content, including our next guest's 
college draft big board ahead of Monday night, which can be seen on the Lacrosse Flash website. Joining us now on GLE Lacrosse Flash Insider, Dan Arrestia. What's going on, Dan? Welcome to the show. How are we doing, guys? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're doing great. We're doing great, Dan. The college draft is now less than a week away, Monday night, April 26th at 10.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 Pacific. Over the last few weeks on this show, we've been talking about some of the guys that we're expecting to go early in this draft, you know, talking about some narratives that we could see play out. Obviously, there's the whole Sowers or Bernhardt argument at number one. We'll get to that shortly, but today... We're going to take a much closer look at some of these prominent names that you have here, Dan, on your big board. For anyone that has not given the final edition of Dan's piece a look, make sure to have it pulled up now if you can as we go through it and offer some analysis. Again, head on over to lacrossflash.com. And let me remind everyone of the criteria before we get started, as Dan has it outlined at the top of his article. For the most part, these are all grad seniors, guys that came back this year on that extra year of eligibility. But there are a few names that are fourth-year seniors, Nakai Montgomery, the prominent one that you have listed. But these are all grad students and seniors. And then probably the most important rule of all, this is not a mock draft or the order that Dan or I expect these guys to get drafted and expect that to come later in the week. Follow at GL Extended and at Lacrosse Flash, at Dan Aresti on Instagram and Twitter so you don't miss that. But this is not a mock draft. This is Dan's rankings of which players he expects to make the biggest impact at the pro level. But as you said, without further ado, let's check out this board. And let's start at the bottom of your article with the specialist. As he as has been mentioned a few times on this show, there are a few names that, uh, uh, that might be looking – few teams, I should say, that might be looking for a face-off man. The Archers, the Water Dogs, Chrome, and the Chaos all only have one going into this draft. And one team, the Whipsnakes, have one goalie. So Coach Dagnita most likely looking for a backup for Kyle Burnlor heading to training camp. Let's start with the goalies. You have Syracuse's Drake Porter, Georgetown's Owen McElroy, and Duke's Mike Adler, formerly of St. Joe's, headlining your group of netminders, Alex Road. Also in your next tier, he's been impressive for Virginia this season. But just like the Whipsnakes, you know, they only have one goalie right now. There are a handful of teams that are currently carrying three. So the possibility that Coach Dagnita chooses to wait this one out until after the draft and then add a goalie ahead of the waiver wire closing is also very real. That also uh, could be uh, a goalie that isn't necessarily drafted on Monday. But we will wait and see how the draft unfolds. But you mentioned in your board that it won't be surprising if only one goalie is taken in this draft, possibly none. Expand on that for us. And why is Porter the guy in your eyes? Yeah, you know, well, I, I, we should also say when it comes to the Whipsnakes, uh, it kind of flew under the radar a little bit, but they did add another goalie a few days ago. They added Reed Junkin out of Penn uh, from the player pool. So they have they have two goalies on the roster. Whether or not Junkin is a guy that, you know, they might want to move forward with or not, it's tough to say. I thought maybe a Dan Morris might make sense for them as a Maryland guy and, and you know, a guy who can be a, an impact pro and play behind Burnmore and already have a rapport with all those guys. But, you know, there's, there's still things that could happen there. Um, when it comes to the guys on the board, I've had board, uh, Jake Porter is number one um, pretty much the whole way. You know, I, I still think when it comes to the net miners, he's at the top of this group. He's not playing in front of as, uh, as let's say, as strong of a defense or behind as strong of a defense as a McElroy or an Adler is. Um, you know, the defense in front of in front of Porter on that Q's team has, has definitely struggled in recent weeks for sure. You saw they got absolutely torched by Carolina. But, um you know, I think Porter is the most pro-ready and looks the most comfortable against, you know, pro-level shots. I think he tracks the ball well. I think his top-hand speed is the best in this group. Um, you know, I think he's a really, really strong athlete. A, a guy who could, who has, who has come up the list a little bit in uh, in recent weeks has been uh, Lehigh's James Spence. I think he's probably turned some heads. There are probably some PLO coaches looking at him. He's been, you know, 
first team All American, second team All American level goalie for me. Um, I think you know he's right there with with guys like McElroy. Um, in terms of accolades, that'll be one of the college level this year. So um, any one of those guys, I think, is is good enough to make a PLL roster. That said, uh, you know, as as you mentioned, and as I said in, in the piece, uh, goalie in the PLL is a place where the the goalies play for a really long time at a very high level for a really long time. You know, John Galloway is still doing it really, really well, and he's been doing it really well for a long time. So it's not a spot where when there's only, you know, there's eight teams now and goalies play forever who are awesome, it's really, really tough to make a team as a goalie. So, you know, could you see one goalie drafted? Maybe. Could you see none drafted? I think that's possible. I think it's possible to make it through the college draft without a guy getting taken, and then teams can decide maybe to add a guy to for for a camp roster afterwards if uh, if they like where they're at, or or just bring somebody in for competition after the fact. But um, yeah, for me, it's still Porter at the top of my list. I think. With sports gambling becoming more and more popular, more states are legalizing the PLL, obviously jumping on that last season. It would be interesting to see what a spread would look like in terms of how many goalies are selected in this draft. Something to look forward to and hope for down the line. But as you're saying, you know, all these these goalies, these veteran goalies, it seems like they get into the league, they get really, really successful, they play really, really well, and obviously just, you know, gain the respect of, of the coaches. You know, you want to keep those guys around and and they're getting to play in deep into their careers. But let's take a look at these face-off guys. Obviously, the one that jumps off the page is T.D. Erlen, the record holder of almost every major NCAA face-off and ground ball record, whether it be a game, season, or career record. I mean, the NCAA even changed the uh, face-off rules to try to eliminate Fogos like him. And, and as we've all been able to see over his first few games, they were largely unsuccessful in doing that. Yes, he struggled this past weekend against Georgetown, but still proving this season that he is the best draw guy in this class. And I don't think there's a world where he isn't the first face-off guy off the board. And then to get him, I honestly think you need to make a move. The Redwoods sitting at four, the Archers at five, the two teams we are looking at to try to add a draw guy. And I think if you want him, you're going to have to make a move to probably secure him. But I think it's safe to say TD is sort of on a pedestal of his own, and then we'll see if Gallagher or Saria, maybe some of those other names that you have listed get their names called at some point as face-off needing teams add depth. Yeah, yeah. Erlen is definitely going to be the guy. You know, if there's a face-off record at this point, he holds it. He's he's just an absolute monster. And, you know, the the interesting thing is, you know, the, the Woods is the spot where everyone's saying there's no way the Woods don't take it, right? He's good. They're there in the four spot. The teams picking ahead of the woods all have a face-off guy that they can feel comfortable enough with as a number one. Obviously, the Atlas with Baptiste are feeling good. The Chrome with Farrell are probably feeling fine. And the Water Dogs with Withers. Withers had a great summer last year, and you'd, you'd be okay running it back with him again. Um, so Erlen is, is a guy that I'm sure the, the move is the Redwoods. But, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things that could happen to make this interesting. Um, number one is obviously Kyle Gallagher is at Notre Dame now. And the Notre Dame connection to the Redwoods is quite strong. There's Notre Dame defenders all over the place. There's Notre Dame offensive players all over the place. The connection to that team is really, really strong. And I would imagine some of those players might already be lobbying Coach Nat to say, let's go with the Notre Dame guy. And not for no reason. It's because if you're looking for somebody who can have success against TD Erland, the guy you want is Kyle Gallagher. Gallagher is a guy who, when he was at Penn, had success against Erlen at games. You know, he, he had games where Erlen was going at 50%, sub 50% at times. So if you're thinking Erlen's going to come into this league and be a Baptiste-level dominant player, the question for me then is if I can't have him, who do I want instead? You want Gallagher because he's shown he can beat him. You might even think 
I want the guy who can beat TD Erland in this draft who already is connected to some of my players through a college connection. So um, I think it's, I think, I think TD probably goes, but I, I, I wouldn't be shocked in a world where Kyle Gallagher gets taken at four by the way. The Archers obviously at five faceoff being an area of emphasis for some teams, the Archers Redwoods being two of them. We'll see who addresses it. Probably I'd imagine we'll see both of them address it. Obviously who takes TD, who takes Kyle Gallagher. I'd imagine both of those teams eyeing both of those guys. Let's move up the board. Let's take a look at the polls you have listed as you put your defensemen and LSMs together. Let's start with the LSMs because there are two names that I have circled here on your board. Ryan McNulty out of Loyola. He seems like a definite depth add come the latter parts of this draft. And then Virginia's LSM, Jared Connors, who I have pegged as my number one player going into Monday night. What do you like from these two guys and where do you see them falling on draft night? You know, if Connors makes it out of the of like the first half of the first round, it, I think it'll be it'll be surprising. Um, you know, I, th I think Joe Keegan, I think some others have have said, and like player comps are, I know they're they're silly and people don't always like them. I like to think of a player. If you're going to do a comp, you think of what a guy's ceiling is, right? Who's in the league? How good can this guy be that's already in the league? And the Connors ceiling is is like Michael Earhart level. This is a this is a Team USA starting LSM level player. He can stay on on offense if. You he plays, you know, when UVA plays sort of that 5v5 game with Connors on the field, and if you leave him, he can score and he can be dangerous. He's incredibly good in transition. He's a freak of an athlete, and he's a lockdown LSM who's going to crush it on wings. He's going to win you ground balls. Um, there's there's nothing that he will not do well. He will dominate games between the lines, and he'll, he's a guy who will, you know, be, be near the top of the points scored board for LSMs in the PLL, I would, I would say in his first few years of the league, I, I had written, you know, uh, I think a, a couple of iterations of the big board ago that if, if I was going to pick somebody from this draft class that I felt most sure could be an all-star in their rookie year, I would probably pick Connors to be the guy who could do it. Um, for McNulty, he's incredibly smooth. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the highlight clip of his goal this year where he puts the spin move on somebody and, and with, you know, makes the stick look like a toy and hums a shot that like no goalie is saving. And, you know, the, the, the ground ball game and, and all those pieces are, are where he shines most. Um, Connors is definitely a better defender than McNulty is but when it comes to that, being able to impact both ends, push the transition, which, you know, PLL coaches will love out of their polls is guys who can be involved in that way. You can trust to be involved in transition offense. McDulty's a guy who fits the bill for that for sure. So, um, you know, really it's about that, that PLL skill set that they both have. Connors has it as, at an incredible level already. And McNulty's is, is there, like you said, it's like a depth ad, you know, if, if, um, if the archers are looking for somebody to spell Scott Ratliff. He's a good guy who can do that. He's the same kind of player. Hey, you brought up, uh, you know, the not letting Connors get through the first half of this, you know, the first half of the first round of this draft. And then obviously the comparison to uh, Michael Earhart. I'm just saying as long as Connors does not fall to seven, we cannot allow that to happen. We can't yeah. allow that to happen. Yeah, that would be a nightmare. I mean, I don't, I want, I want, I want when it comes to the whip snakes, I just want to hear Stegner to say pass over and over again. Like, give everybody else a shot to take these guys. You've got your team. Don't take anybody, okay, coach? Yep. Just come on, give us a shot here. Along with the long stick middies, we also have a wide selection of really good defensemen that should be drafted. Leading that crew is JT Giles Harris out of Duke and Jack Keelty out of Notre Dame. Arguably the top two defensemen in college across and definitely two of the top talents in this draft. But Keelty in particular 
has stuck out over the last few weeks as Notre Dame has gone into the thick of ACC play for the most part being left to uh, you know guard the opponent's top attackman. Dan, you have Giles Harris as your top defenseman, but said that Kielty is pushing him for that spot. What do these two guys respectively bring to a team and a defensive unit, and where do you see them both falling next week? Well, with Giles Harris, you're going to get the, the strongest defender in the class, the best athletic defender in the class. He's got remarkable footwork. Um, you know, a, a big sort of test for him recently was his matchup with Chris Gray uh, of UNC, where I thought he did really well on ball. He covered Gray really well. You can see that there are moments where, you know, as, as the man he's guarding, as his attackman, if he's guarding from X, is approaching GLE, it just becomes time for Giles Harris to move him to somewhere else. And it's it's just like with, with the leverage he creates when he gets low and gets on his man's hips, he can move his feet remarkably well laterally and just drive attackmen to wherever he wants to put them. And you can see what go back and sort of watch some of that film of him guarding Gray, you can see as Gray approaches GLE, you can watch Giles Harris just sit and push and drive this attackman off of his dodge and get Gray to a place where he's not as dangerous, which is not something basically anybody has been able to do. Um, with Keelty, the, the big game for him was his last one against Duke, where he was basically left on an island, borderline an island, to guard Michael Sowers, which is, number one, you can tell you what a coaching staff thinks of him, to say, all right, we can put you on Sowers with very little help, and you'll be okay. And he was. Um, but what what that tells you is, if you're a PLL coach, you want to know from these defenders if they are ready to guard some of these elite level attackmen in the pro game. And and Sowers is getting ready to be that. You know, depending on who you ask, he's the number one pick. Um, but you know, being able to guard like a guy like him or Bernhardt or T is something you want to know if these guys can do that. Because the attackman at the next level, there is no off game. There is no game where you go in and you're like, all right, the other team's attack is a little down. Like, no, there is no down attack. There is no bad attack. So when you put Kielty out there and you say you need to guard, you know, I use the example of, all right, you're putting him out on the field against the Redwoods, and you need to decide, are you guarding Matt Cavanaugh, Ryder Garnsey, Rob Pinnell, or Jules Henningberg? Like, we need to get you to – cover somebody by yourself. Kielty's a guy who you trust to do that right now because he showed you in a game against Sowers, I can play on an island against some of the best Dodgers that there are in the game of lacrosse, and you can trust me to get the job done, to limit my guy. So that's that's something you're looking for is a known quantity on defense, especially in a year where when it comes to defensive depth, there is not a, not necessarily a ton. It's not a knock on all the guys in this class. But the level of players between, you know, there, there's a drop-off between guys like Giles Harris and Kielty and like a Nick Grill down down to the next group where they aren't as much of a known quantity at the pro level as those first few guys are. So you want to make sure if you have a defensive need, these are guys you get. Dan, you have uh, Giles Harris as your top pull coming into this draft, followed by Jaron Connors and then Jack Keelty. And then that second tier pulls in your top 10. You mentioned a few of them. You got Gibson Smith out of Georgetown, Nick Grill from Maryland leading that group. You also have Yale's Chris Fake, who did not play this season, Towson's Kobe Smith, and then Keelty's Notre Dame teammates, Arden Cohen and Kyle Thornton. Not really having that that, you know, just the, the pro feel, as you're saying. What We know that come the third round, we'll see a few of these teams, you know, they're going to grab and, and, you know, some defenders. Phil Depth com to uh, compete at camp. Who do you like out of this group? You know, I'll tell you somebody else who's who's in my next tier, who I like, who's who's not going to get a ton of pub necessarily because of where he plays. But um, Brad Apgar out of Salisbury is a guy where if you want to add some depth in the style of defender that we've seen kind of 
be popular in the first two drafts, right? Like Coach Bates was talking about adding defenders who can be mean and physical with guys like Rambo when they play the Whipsnakes. So he adds Warren Jeffrey and Graham Hasek, right? If you want a guy who is going to be big and mean, you've got 6'4", 215 Brad Apgar out of Salisbury, who is a monster athlete and will play that mean covered defense that you're looking for, right? So, you know, his his build and his ability is very much in the vein of what we've seen kind of the style of defender that PLO coaches are liking lately with guys like Hasek and Jeffrey and, and you know, and Ben Randall or even Liam Burns, guys like that. Apgar is that kind of guy. He's got that size and athleticism and he's got that, you know, mean streak to him where um, I think if you wanted to take a guy that didn't have the pub, and maybe not as many people were talking about, but very much is in that style. Apgar is a guy you can look at. Ooh, I like that. I like to see, uh, wait to see if Avgar is selected here in this college draft. A very solid group of polls, probably to fill some depth here in this college draft. And the same applies for the midfield position. Now, for your board, you broke up the midfielders into the Sergio Perkovic division and the Brent Adams division. The Perkovic division for your primarily offensive midfielders, the Adams division for your two-way guys and short stick D middies. Let's start with those two-way guys because I'm a big fan of Ryan Tarafenko. As you said in the article, his stat line week in and week up, or week out filled up, scoring goals and assists, winning faceoffs, picking up ground balls. If he had a save in there, I probably wouldn't be too surprised. But doing it all, and as you said, and I'll take it even a step further, a luxury for every PLO team to be able to dress a player in Ryan Tarafenko to be not just a major contributor in the middle of the field, as, but also as you know your backup faceoff guy, especially with the roster limits that are in place. But Tarafenko looking like he might be picked very early in this draft, carrying a strong skill set that not too many players can replicate. Yeah, yeah, that's like what you said is is why he's he's so valuable is because you don't have to dress a second take a, a second faceoff guy if you have Terrafenko. He can spell your guy. He's winning faceoffs. You know, he's he's not winning eighty percent of his draws at Ohio State or anything, but he's gonna get out there and he's gonna mix it up. He might win the ground ball if he doesn't win it clean. He's gonna at least scrap for it. And if he doesn't win, you're okay because you're gonna want him on defense anyway. And you know, he can play on the offensive end. They need to like. Like hockey has the Gordie Howe hat trick. Eventually, there's going to be something that's Ryan Tarafenko labeled that's like that equivalent in lacrosse, where it's like he's going to have a goal, a faceoff win, and a fight one in the PLL or something like that. You know, so I, I think Tarafenko is is the obvious pick because he does everything so well. Um, and then if you go sort of down the list a little bit, you know, I'd I'd had Peter Durth pretty locked into the two spot on this list um, for a lot of the year. But, you know, sort of in recent weeks, I've thought Jeff Trainer has kind of moved moved past him um, for that versatility reason. I think Dearth is the is the second best of the defenders in this group. And obviously he's the monster sized midfielder that you're going to want to have in the PLL. Um, what you get with him is the the shorty who physically you can match up against a Miles Jones or a Sergio Perkovic or, or John Vanagan or some of these other large downhill dodging middies, then you need a shorty to stop them. Dirth is a guy who you could probably trust to do that because he's their size and, and has that strength. Um, but when it comes to the transition part and maybe staying on on offense and some of the wing play stuff, um, I kind of like Jeff Trainer now maybe a little more. I like him to be more involved on both ends than Dirth would be. I think if you're a team looking for Give me a pure short stick defender who is going to guard the guy that I want him to guard and, and do well, and I don't need him to be as involved on the offensive end. 
you want dearth. If you want a guy who can play solid defense, not as good as dearth, but play solid defense, can win ground balls and can push transition in a way where he's very capable and can stay on on the offensive end, then Trainer's probably your guy. Um, the other guys on the list, I think I like Danny Logan a little bit ahead of Jamie Trimboli. Trimboli, I don't think has had a great a great year this year. I know Clark loves him, and he, you know, he, he's pointed out that Trimboli, Trimboli is a much better offensive player than probably everybody else on this list, which is true. Um, but you know, offensively this year, I don't think Trimboli's shown us as much as he has in, in years past. So, I think if I'm looking at my two-way guys, I'm looking at the other guys ahead. But I think uh, the the ceiling on Trimboli is is great. You know, if if he plays like he did maybe in years past prior to this year, then you're getting a heck of a bargain a little bit down the list. Um, Another guy in the next tier who's, I, I mean, this is another guy who, who I think has the ability to return to school if he wants to. But um, guys like Donville, Jonathan Donville from Cornell and Mitch Bartolo from Penn are other guys in that this is a very big athletic midfielder, which PLL coaches love. It's, you know, I, the guy who can be overpowering, can shoot from distance, can dodge, can play off ball, can do all those things. You know, Bartolo we finally get a look at because Penn's going to play Cabrini this weekend, I think, which is going to be... I mean, I can't wait to watch that. Um, Donville, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to see any Cornell games this year. We'll see what happens, but I'm not holding my breath. So, um, but those are other guys you could add. And then I have Bubba Fameron on the list just because, you know, and I think he can return to school if he wants to. But um, Bubba, in recent weeks, has been playing off the charts. He was throwing dimes last week against Ohio State. He's got that big frame as well. You know, he's a solid defensive player. He had a few cause turnovers against Ohio State. He can be part of a ride, dropping into a ride with him. You feel really, really strong about the way he covers the midfield line. So um, I've really liked Bubba Fairman's game in the last few weeks too. I think I think this two-way group has really elevated itself in, in the last month or so of college lacrosse. A handful of really good two-way middies that we're watching. Tara Fenko, obviously, getting his name into the conversation for one of those top picks in the draft. We'll wait and see if, if uh, a lot of these guys get their names called on Monday night. Obviously, players that these coaches like, kind of the, the prototypical type that these guys are. Let's keep it moving. You have Connor Kirst and Dox Aiken headlining your group of offensive midfielders. Kirst currently at Rutgers after transferring from Villanova. Aiken back with Virginia, and you have them in that order. Kirst, then Dox, but it could be flipped come draft day, depending on who has those picks. But what do these guys, uh, what do these two guys bring to the table? Well, you know, Kirst, Kirst has been playing attack for Rutgers, um, but, you know, midfield his entire Villanova career, and that's where he is. He's a midfielder. But Kirst is, is two-point range on the run, which is not something a lot of players have, have ever really had. Um, he is, again, the big frame is something everybody loves, but downhill dodger and, and can also beat people from wings with underneath dodges. He is sneaky, like agile for a guy his size. And again, the range, you know, the two-point line is whatever, 15 yards. Kirst can be good from 18. Like he can, he can shoot from a few steps back from the arc. So, and he's, you know, another thing that's about it that's great is some of the you watch two point shooting in the league and there's, there's like, there's one guy, there's Chan and Chuck who doesn't need like the crow hop and the big windup and the step in. It's like, if he has his hands free and a little bit of space, he can just snap off a two pointer. That's got a good chance. He's one of the best two point shooters in the league. And, and cursed is that same kind of thing where it's like, he doesn't need the big crow hop and a ton of space to be able to get off the shot. That's going to go from two. He can get it with a little like hitch dodge to one hand and a little bit of space and just fire it and he can beat you from range. So that's something that's attractive about him. Docs, um, you know, famously at this point got off to a slow start this year. I think transitioning back from football shape and football skill sets and to, into lacrosse 
is is harder than people probably imagine. And that probably contributed to the slow start a little bit. That and some of the sets he was working out of weren't always, it, it didn't seem like he was always playing to his strengths. He was um, part of an offense that was, again, crushing it anyway. UVA was scoring goals on people left and right with everybody else. So it's not like there was a ton of pressure on him to produce. Um, anyway, you wanted to see more, but it wasn't a big deal. And now in recent weeks, particularly against Notre Dame, he was just firing missiles and dodging people. And it was it was the docs we were used to seeing. And something else about him that you like, which is not, you know, it's weird to try and be that person who's like, what he doesn't show up on the stat sheet, because I'm a big fan of what does. Um, but with Doc's, you know, Lars says it, and they say it every broadcast, that the fourth quarter is Doc's time, and the biggest games are where Doc's plays his best. And it's tough to find that, like, innately in people where you can point to time after time after time where it happens that way, where if it's a big game, you're getting a big game out of Doc's. And that's something, you know, you can't really put that in a measurable category, but it's valuable. It's something you want out of these guys. So, um Docs is also, I think, the, the thing that might put him ahead of Kirst is I probably feel a little bit better about Docs on the defensive end than I do Kirst. It's not by much, but um, in terms of that two-way play and, and wing play on face-offs and stuff like that, Docs might have an edge, but um, you know, in, in terms of the offensive ability and the offensive impact they can have, I think Kirst has the edge a little bit right now. Docs and Kirst have to be taken towards the top of the draft. You definitely can't go wrong with either of them. And then your next tier of midfielders, Nakai Montgomery out of Duke, Logan Wisnowskis from Maryland, Tanner Cook from UNC, and Charlie Bertrand, the two-time D2 player of the year at Mary Mac, now lighting it up with Virginia. Montgomery still has the chance to go back for another year, so we will wait to see what his decision is. But these four guys, depth adds in the midfield, probably coming in the middle uh, to late parts of this draft that will definitely be making a serious push for one of these eight game rosters come the start of the season. But what do you like when you watch the tape on these four guys? So Wisnowskis has, is just like quietly put together one of the most like prolific scoring careers that Maryland's had in a long time. He keeps like leading the team in points, even though he's a teammate of Jared Bernhardt, which is insane. So um, Wisnowskis can do a lot of things and it's not all in one category. He's, he's a good balanced scorer. They play him at attack. I think he's a run-out-of-the-box guy at the pro level, but he'll win a matchup against a shorty, and he will always, always, always make the right play. He does not turn the ball over a ton, and he's he's going to make feeds and, and see plays that you're looking for out of guys, especially as a rookie, that you know you trust him on the field. Um, you know, I, I hope Nakai comes out, but he can go back to Duke, and I can't imagine he wouldn't. Um, but, you know, his game at, at the pro level – He's having, he has Kyle Harrison-esque moments about him at Duke right now, which is like an insane level of praise. But there are moments where he dusts his guy, fires a jump shot down the alley, and you swear you're watching, you know, 18 for the Blue Jays. So, um, you know, I hope we see Nakai in the pro game soon, but I would imagine he goes back to Duke. Um, Tanner Cook is a guy who, you know, is at, is at five on my list, and I think he's a guy who could go a little higher than maybe where I have him slotted. Um, he's got, you know, a, a, an indoor skill set. He's a big body midi. He's dynamite for UNC out of the invert and from those wing plays. You can see him take a shorty down there sometimes, and he is immediately a problem. And if help doesn't get sent, he's going to win a matchup, you know, th those physical matchups from wings, from an invert set. And, you know, that's something that you see more and more now from PLL offenses is playing those big little games, inverts, and those midfield dodges from the wings. And that's exactly what Cook does really well. So, He's got a skill set that feels pretty, you know, pretty pro-ready right now. 
Jack Hanna, Justin Anderson, Kevin Rogers, and Alex Concan, and some other names to keep in mind in the midfield as this draft unfolds. All right, time to look at these big dogs. And this is a pretty fine list that you put together here, Dan, of attackmen whose names will be available on draft night. And the conversation's already starting as to who the Alice should take first overall. You got Mike Sowers, you got Jeff T. And you have Jared Bernhardt in that order of top attackmen in this class. And you have been making your case clear on Twitter over the weekend, defending your ranking of Sowers as your top pick and player in this draft. Sum it up for us right now. What separates Tower, uh, Sowers from Bernhardt and T? And why does he fit the bill better than those two when it comes to what Ben Rubier and the Atlas need first overall? Yeah, I mean, it's Sowers isn't separated by all that much. Like, I, I just want to say that, you know, I, I said Sowers is number one. And like the the case that people were making for other people was that Sowers is somehow like a bad lacrosse player, which is insane. Like Sowers is one of the best attackmen that the college game has ever seen. And, um, you know, his ability to be a quarterback for an offense to regardless of what the people in my mentions tell you to play at all spots on the field, not just at X, to be a balanced scorer who can get his own shot and can be a remarkably good feeder. And he's, he's already dusting pro level defensemen. While he's in college, um, you know, for me, looking at the Atlas need of of a quarterback player, and I know Eric Law is on the Atlas. This isn't a knock on Eric Law. Um, I think it makes sense there because Eric Law is also such a dominant off-ball player. Since there's so many parts of Eric Law's game that are like a 10 out of 10 anyway, that if you bring in a quarterback and say he's going to be our primary ball handler, you're not going to harm Eric Law's game all that much. He's just that good and smart of a lacrosse player. Like he's going to get his in different ways because he's been doing that forever and he's incredibly gifted. So, um, you know, I think Sowers as a primary ball carrier who can also be your primary distributor is something that the Atlas really are going to need. And I think he's the best distributor of those first three guys. Um, again, that's not to say that T and Bernhardt aren't good at that because they are, they're awesome. They're all time greats, but I like Sowers skill set just a little bit more in that regard to feed guys, you know, as, as the, Atlas have added guys like Brandon Sunday as a shooter, or even, you know, Dan Beccaro, who's going to be mostly a Dodger for his own shot. That's what he does so well. But, you know, to try and draw slides, feed Beccaro in space, to re-dodge against somebody whose approach isn't any good, that's going to be a goal. You know, to feed shooters like Costabile, who can hit from two, Romar Dennis, who can hit from two. There's lots of smart players on this team, and there's lots of very good shooters that you expect to join this team. So, you know, I think with the personnel that are on that roster right now, Sowers is the best fit that makes the most sense to me. Um, I think there's a case for Bernhardt at one. I think it's a really strong case to say Bernhardt can do all of that that I just said. He can do all that too, and he absolutely can. Um, you know, I, I think if you want to try and make the case too that Bernhardt's a little bigger and more athletic, um, I think that that certainly helps his case for, as we said earlier, PLL defenses that are adding the big, physical, bruising defensemen like Hasek, like Tucker Durkin, guys like that who are going to, to physically wear on you over the course of a game. Um, Bernhardt might be a little better suited to deal with that kind of punishment as a bigger, stronger athlete. But, you know, I, I still think I would take Sowers ahead of time. If somebody says Bernhardt goes one, I'm not going to be shocked. It wouldn't surprise me. The same for Jeff T. Jeff T can play every spot on the field. Jeff T's already been a world-class attackman. He was at the World Games as a sophomore, you know, when he was at Cornell, which is insanely impressive. Um, you know, guys like Trey LeClaire were there too, and, and LeClaire is also, you know, on, on this list, but guys with that kind of pedigree who have seen not just pro-level um, offenses and defenses in action, but 
been part of them and played against, you know, world-class defenses and offenses in place. little different rule set, but it's not so much that it would really give you pause about drafting somebody that high. Um, I think all of these guys have a great case. It's weird that, like, not Jeff Teat not playing – it's not like hurting his draft stock, but I think if he was playing and people got to see him on a regular basis the way they do with with Sowers and with Bernhardt, there would be a lot more people saying Jeff Teed is an obvious number one pick. Um, I, I, think, I think there's a case for him at one, like I said. He can play everywhere. He's got an indoor background. He can dust poles. Like his, his, his wrists, I don't know if he has like an extra joint in there that he can just like snap like somewhere between like here and then here and then here again to make like a shot just come out of nowhere. But um, it's got, you know, a decent range. Maybe that might be a little bit underrated as part of his draft profile, but he can shoot from distance and he can get his own shot. You watch these dodges he comes up with from wings and it, he, he creates dodges that nobody's ever seen before. He's just got ways to beat you upon ways to beat you upon ways to beat you. So and, and again, he can be a distributor as well. I think I would have him as a feeder, strictly a feeder. I would, I might have him third in this group, maybe second, maybe, yeah. I don't know if I put Bernard ahead of him as a feeder or not, but, um, you know, the, the bottom line is, and I, I kind of tried to make this point on Twitter as well as my mentions were going down in flames, but this, this is like a 1983 draft class in the NFL. Like you're, you're getting Elway, Marino, and Jim Kelly with three, these three guys. You're getting Hall of Famers. You're getting franchise changes. You're getting guys who you can put in the lineup on the first day, and they will start piling up points. I think just like there was in 83, there's a John Elway, who I would put ahead of the others, and Michael Sowers. But you're not going to go wrong if you wind up with Dan Marino or with Jim Kelly. You're getting guys who are going to set the world on fire. So, um, you know, I think the way it shakes out is going to be is going to be a ton of fun, to be honest. Um, you know, I think it, it must be a blast to be Ben Rubior and just get to watch tape on these three guys and try and, you know, kid in the candy store your way to a pick for one of them. But, um, you know, somebody's going to get lucky with a second pick and somebody's going to get lucky with a third pick. And I, I think, you know, these guys are the top three attackmen, but as we said at jump, this is not a mock draft. And I think there's going to be teams who decide maybe they want to go with, with a JT Giles Harris or a Jared Connors before they take one of these guys because – they have big defensive needs. They feel okay with their offense, and it's tough to get uh, a pro-ready poll in later rounds. So, you know, do you see a Sowers, Teat, or Bernhardt go at, like, four, five, six? Like, it would be insane to think so, but I think it's possible. If you throw TD in the mix in those first couple picks, and Connors and Giles Harris, um, you know, is, is there a world where Jared Bernhardt winds up on the whip snakes? I hate to say it, but, like, Yes, that's possible. It's very possible. I hope it doesn't happen, please. But Please, I, I really hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> Sowers transferring from Princeton to Duke. He averaged nine and a half points per game and six assists per game in five games in 2020 as the guy for the Tigers averaging five and a half points this season on a stacked Blue Devils offense. And Jared Bernhardt, the Tawaraton favorite right now, averaging over six points a game. Jeff T and Cornell have not played a game due to the Ivy League's canceled, uh, canceled season, but keeping his name in the conversation here early in this draft. If you have Sowers going first overall, how far do you see Bernhardt and Teat falling? I'm thinking Teat, no later than six. Obviously, Andy Towers being there at six with the chaos. He selected Teat in last year's college draft and then first overall in the NLL draft as a, member, as a, a coach with the Riptide. How far do you see Bernhardt and Teat falling? You know, if Sowers goes one, I – 
of these three attackmen, two of them don't, you know, one of them is making it out of the first two picks. The, the Atlas are going to take, they need to take an attackman of, of these caliber. They need to take Sowers, Teeter, Bernhardt. Whoever they decide to take is the right pick, pretty much. There's there's no way to screw this up. Um, I think the Water Dogs need to add an attackman as well. I think, you know, they've they added some quality players in the, in the or in the uh, in the entry draft, I should say. But I think their attack still needs a guy who you can throw the ball to and say, "Go get me a goal," and feel really good about their ability to do it. So, um, you know, I think a a Teet or Bernhardt. I think Bernhardt makes a ton of sense for the Water Dogs. If you want to put Teet there, then I think that's fine too. But one of those two guys is is making it is making it, or one of those three guys is making it out of the first two picks. Um, the Chrome at three, I don't know if you want to, what you want to do with attack if you're the Chrome, right? Because you have Wolf, you have Gutterding, you have Godet playing off ball. You just added Randy Stotts, so you can play an attack if you want to. Like their their attack roster is is really pretty loaded. So you know if if the Water Dogs take Bernhardt and the Chrome want to run T out of the box or something, or run one of those other guys out of the box. I think that makes sense, and and that's a, that's a world where you could see the three of them going in the first three picks. But if the Chrome don't take one, the Redwoods aren't. I can't imagine would take one. They are already so backed up at attack. They're going to be running Ryan Lee and Jules Henningberg out of, out of the box. Like, they're, they're, the attack spots are well spoken for on the Redwoods, barring another trade or like a sudden retirement or something like that. Um, I can't imagine the Redwoods take one of them ahead of a, ahead of a face-off need. And the Archers, I think they're doing okay at attack, last I looked. So, you know, I don't I don't know if they would take one of these guys to try and run out of the box, but um, I think the chaos is the spot where you could see Towers really luck out and wind up with one of the three and take them. If it winds up being Jeff T, it's like the Stars have aligned. And yet, yet another guy with a Canadian passport is going to be playing for the chaos. So... Um, you know, I think that would be a really interesting outcome. I, it's especially because Towers already drafted him once. Like, it's not any mystery that Towers would take him again if he was there. He liked him enough to draft him the first time when he didn't even know if he was going to play for him or not. So, yep. um, you know, I, I think there's a world where Teet or Bernhardt make it that far, or Sowers, whoever you want to, you know, decide to put in that group. But there's that middle of the first round pack of Chrome Woods archers who may already feel good enough about their attack. And they don't think they want to run one of these guys out of the box. That one will slip past pick three, four, and five. I don't know if one makes it past chaos. Chaos is in, you know, I don't know how you can try and add these guys to chaos because their offense is guys that can play all over the place. You can run one of these guys out of the box. They're all so flexible. They all play well together. You would you would assume. So you know, they could add a guy and probably not be too worried about his position because. They're adding these guys who were like positionless offensive players, I think, to solve basically for this, so that I never have to feel weird about adding an attackman because my attackman can play everywhere. Let's hope that the chaos, if if one of those three are available, because again, same thing applies with Jared Connors. One of these three guys cannot fall to the whip snakes. It is just unfair. <laughs> that can't happen. Jake Caraway, Ryan Tierney, and Trey LeClaire, your next three names at attack. What do they bring to the table in terms of being depth ads, but also looking to make a difference at some point if given that opportunity to break one of these loaded offenses? You know, I really like Ryan Tierney. I think his stock has gone way up since the start of the season. Um, you know, he's, he started the year. I think he was in my, like, next level of guys, and now here he is, you know, in, in the top five of the attack group. And to get there, you have to vault some very impressive players. So, um, 
I really like his ability to to get his own shot. He seems like he could be on Sports Center every week. He is also his his vision is insane. Um, speaking of being on Sports Center, he threw a cross field bounce pass for an assist in a recent game. Like he he sees everything, and his he's another guy who doesn't need much to get a shot off. That's a lethal shot. Like he shoots on the run with just a snap of his wrist. That's so quick. You watch it and it's look your, it looks like your TV's dropping frames. Like his stick is here and then he's through his shot already and the ball's in the net and you didn't even really see him do it. So he's got a ridiculously fast release on the run. Um, and he's got a skill set too, where his, he's at his most dangerous in a place that PLL offenses like to attack from, from those wings, from low wings, from, from X, you know, there's not as much of the alley dodging and downhill dodging from up top in the PLL. So a guy like Tierney does his best work where PLL offenses already like to operate. So, you know, I, I think he's an immediate impact guy. Caraway is the same kind of deal. He's going to do his best work from X. Um, I don't know if I'd be as comfortable running him out of the box, maybe as some of these other guys like a Leclerc. I think Leclerc could be a natural midfielder even at, at the PLL level. Um, you know, as we said earlier, he's got a pro game pedigree. He's played with team Canada, you know, as a college player in a world game. So, um, you know, you're, you're getting a really strong player with him. I think, you know, you watch Ohio State play, and I would like to see them use the Claire uh, a little differently maybe than they do. I find they don't pick for him all that often. I was watching Maryland. I was like, I don't think they've set a pick for Trey Claire yet. Like, maybe run him off one or two and try and get the best shooter, one of the best shooters in the country, his hands free. Because um, you can see what happens when he does. This is this is a draft where if you're taking shooters at attack, you're taking O'Keefe, and then you're taking Leclerc next. He's the second best shooter in this group. So, um, you know, he's he's a guy where with the right team and the right offense, I think he's an immediate impact player. And again, he's probably a guy who you can run out of the midfield um, right away in, in the PLL and feel okay with it. And he's athletic enough where even if he got stuck on defense, he's a good rider. He's a physical player. Um, it wouldn't be like a nightmare scenario for for teams like it would be if if you ran, you know, like if Sowers ever ran out of the box and wound up on defense, like he's a great athlete, but that's not a good situation. So, um, you know, I, I think I, I might even jump Tierney over Caraway at this point. I'm just rewriting my big board as I look at it, but you know, Caraway's a gifted scorer. Caraway's got great vision. He's playing with, he's, he's played with gifted players like Beccaro at Georgetown and, you know, he's been part of prolific offenses. He's had the keys to it and been successful. He's been an off ball player and been successful. So, you know, he's, he's a very smart and very skilled player who is, is you know, going to fit a PLO offense. Mac O'Keefe, you brought up his name there. And Ethan Walker, two lefties towards the bottom of your attack board. O'Keefe, just this past weekend, breaking the Division One all-time goals record. Walker has also been solid in his five years at Denver, averaging two and a half goals a game over his career. And the problem we know with these lefty shooters in this college draft is that there's already so many of them in the league. But one you know, there's, you know, but when in the draft, you know, you, we could see a team grabbing one of these two guys, O'Keefe and Walker. When could we see one of these two guys, uh, teams grabbing one of these two guys? I think it kind of depends on need. You know, I, I kind of really would like to see O'Keefe um, with the Atlas. I think O'Keefe as a shooter with the Atlas to stretch teams from two-point range. O'Keefe's going to hit a two-pointer at some point this season that's going to blow people's minds. He's going to score from, like, the logo. He's going to do some Steph Curry kind of thing. He can score from forever away. Um, you know, when he set the goal record, I, I pointed out, like, he's shooting 40% for a career at Penn State. And, like, it's not like he's dunking the ball all that often. Like, he gets some shots in tight, but, you know, Penn State runs that sort of 
pick down motion that's meant to free him from the wing coming up top to get to his left hand, where he shoots usually from range, from like 13, 15 yards, and beats goalies, again, 40% of the time. So you're getting a legitimate, like proven, serious two-point threat out of him. Um, you know, I think at the pro level, is he a guy who's going to get his own shot? Like if you isolate him on an island and say, go get me a goal, can he do it? I don't know if he's if he's ready to do that against PLL defenders. Um but running him off of the screen to get a two-pointer or, or to, you know, find him coming out of the box in a transition situation where he can, you know, step into one, where he kind of gets lost a little bit if you if you sub him right, um, I think he can be deadly. And I think the Atlas are a team where, you know, they traded away players like Brown and they traded away some really strong shooters. You know, Busick is gone. Um, even though those guys didn't have, have great shooting summers last year, they're great shooters. Um I think you want to try and replace them a little bit. So they, you know, they added Sunday, um, who can who can shoot really well. But I think another shooter or two would really help that team, especially a, a guy if you wanted to try and play him in attack, you could do it. But you could also run him out of the box. You have Tahoke and Nance Coke as your seventh-ranked attackman. As we all know, he was recently dismissed from the Albany lacrosse team after some on-the-field and off-the-field disputes. We also know that he is a very talented lacrosse player, using his frame to his advantage. But does the dismissal from Albany affect where he's selected and where do you think he finds a home? A few destinations we have in mind in terms of players that he's played with before. You know, it's it's tough. You know, you, know, you, you hated to see him um, dismissed from the team because – He's, he's such a special player, and, and you know, he's, he's a guy you'd buy a ticket to see in a heartbeat. You know, but before his season ended, you were watching these highlights. He's scoring sitting on his butt. Like, he's putting up these goals that are that are absolutely unbelievable. And, um, you know, from a physicality standpoint, from a, from a pure – a guy who can run through a PLL defender right now, he's probably at the top of this list. Like, it's, there's, there's nobody who's as physically – overpowering as as Tohoka is you know another guy who played at the world games you can go back and find a highlight of him putting his shoulder into Joel White and knocking him to the ground and then scoring from 12 yards like Tohoka can do some special things where, you know when, when he really has space to to get himself moving so um you know I think a lot of teams could use a guy like that in terms of how everything happened uh and how it affects his status I don't I don't know if that's for me to say that's for coaches to try and, and evaluate how they weigh, you know, the the risk of of a guy who got dismissed and finding out the facts and and deciding how important the you know the facts of what happened are to to one. Do you think Tohoka will mesh with my guys? Do I need to worry about this guy off the field? Anything like that? Um, you know, if it, if it was me running the team, I think uh, I would I would want to speak to Scott Moore about him, and I would want to speak to some teammates about him. There's plenty of Albany players in the PLL who you could ask, you know. How do you feel about Tohoka joining the team? How do you feel about Tohoka joining another team's team? You want to play against it. Would you be scared to play against it? Um, so, you know, I, I, I hope he lands somewhere, and I hope he gets a shot. Um, again, it's it's for the coaches to decide after they find out, you know, the, the facts of, of the matter, um, if they want to introduce him into their locker room or not. These locker rooms are, even though they're not very old, they're only, you know, we're only in a couple years into the, the PLL here, but um, some of them are very, very tight. They're very close-knit. And, um, you know, they some adding someone that could be disruptive, if you perceive it to be that way, you know, that is a risk of taking him, then, you know, that's that's a consideration you have to make before you draft him is you might have to worry about that kind of thing. And, um, you know, how the team, your, your current locker room perceives adding a guy who got, you know, kicked off his college team. 
a long list of attackmen available in this draft. We will wait and see where they fall, especially at the top. Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on GLE, breaking down your big board heading into the 2021 PLL College Draft. If you haven't already, make sure to check out the full article on lacrosseflash.com for the full list. Again, we will have much more coverage ahead of the college draft later this week on Friday's show. We will look at some of the top picks in the draft and some names that could be filled in next to them. And on Monday, our goal line extended mock draft on our PLL college draft special. Dan, thank you again. Water Dogs head coach Andy Copeland will be joining me next. We'll be right back. back to the show you are watching or listening to goal line extended on the lacrosse flash podcast network i hope that you're all having a great day wherever you might be as we get you set for next week's pll college draft and joining me next here on gle is the 2020 expansion head coach and the man who holds the number two overall pick in that college draft a much lighter offseason without having to draft a whole new team from scratch but still a busy offseason nonetheless with the huge pool of players entering through the entry draft in the waiver wire pool the water dogs were able to add a few of those talented players as well as completing arguably the biggest trade of this offseason we'll be talking much more about that as we get this going but joining me now water dogs head coach andy copeland coach copeland what's going on welcome to the show brian thanks for having me man good to see you again Hey, great to see you as well. A big offseason for you and, uh, and and your team as you get set to lead your team into 2021. It all starts on June 6th for you against the expansion Cannons in Gillette Stadium. And we're looking ahead to that one as, as it will be the first game in PLL history between two expansion teams. The Cannons obviously expanding from the MLL this season, the 2020 MLL bubble champions. But before we look ahead to this season, let's look back at last season, the 2020 championship series in Utah. Not exactly the results you and your team were hoping for. You dropped your first three games before that first win in franchise history over the chaos and overtime in the last game of the round robin play. But you look at those three losses, the combined goal differential was four. A one goal loss to the Atlas in a game where Jack Concannon was absolutely phenomenal. 14 saves to keep his team in the game. And, and the Atlas went on to score four unanswered fourth quarter goals to get that win. Two days later, the Archers managed a six goal second half to go along with 10 saves and one lone goal allowed by Adam Gittleman in the second half. So the glaring you know, aspect of these two games, a strong first half and then not a strong second half finish. But then in the loss to Chrome, the exact opposite. Chrome led 11-3 to going to the into the fourth quarter. Your team held scoreless in the second and third, but then nine goals ripped off in the fourth. A goal too shy as Chrome escaped with a 13-12 to victory. And then, like I said, the overtime win over the chaos for the first win in franchise history. But you look back on these first few games for your team after what was a short preparation time for, for obviously a bubble season that we weren't really expecting, obviously, going into it. What's your assessment on the tournament, and what are you uh, taking from that experience to get you ready for the season? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a great experience. It was fun just to be out there with the guys, and obviously we had the, the challenge of building from inception, and uh, and, and we, we had an unbelievable locker room. I'll state that first and foremost. I, I would put put that group of guys up against against any that I've ever been around. So that that part made, uh, you know, kind of a difficult win-loss record far more enjoyable than, than, than some may think. Uh, and, and honestly, you know, they're – 
there's a process to this whole thing. I mean, everybody always wants stuff to, to happen overnight and certainly nobody wanted that more than me, but you know, kind of like if I put my, my realistic lens on, you understand that we just had to build, you know, kind of a culture and a foundation that we can build upon. And I feel like we have that in place right now. So I, uh, I felt like last year we were close and I feel like this year we are, we are really built to make a run at this thing. So that certainly is the expectation. The Water Dogs finishing the group play with one win, three losses, and then their tournament ending with a loss to the Redwoods in the first round of the elimination tournament ending your 2020 campaign. But what it also did here was get the ball rolling on the preparation plan for 2021, and that plan involved acquiring attackman Ryan Brown from the Atlas by way of a trade, setting the Atlas a second-round college draft selection for this upcoming draft. It will be the 11th overall pick for one of the top attackmen in the league, one of the best shooters in the game, having the ability to really stretch the field and shoot from both sides with both hands at a very high clip. How do you plan on integrating Brown into this offense and how early along in this process did you know that he was a guy that you'd be targeting this offseason to uh, to add via trade, a guy that was really successful in the PLO's first season, playing alongside a guy that you grabbed in expansion last season and that played a big role on this team in Utah, attackman Kieran McArdle? Sure. Well, that, that certainly was part of the logic was you just watch the chemistry that those guys had in, in kind of year one of the PLL. And then I, I've been a Brownie fan forever from back to his Hopkins days and then watching him with Team USA in 2018 and then certainly his professional career. And some may call him the best shooter in the world. I'm, you know, I, I won't I won't make that statement, but I certainly think that he's very elite there. And I just think he, he gives you, a, you know, kind of a stretch guy who has both interior and exterior presence and really, really, really high lacrosse IQ. And uh and I just think he he will cause opposing defenses to game plan for him. Certainly, you know, I think when the Water Dogs played the Atlas last year, I think Brownie had their first two goals of the game before we kind of were able to to, to really adjust and account for him. But he, he puts a lot of pressure on opposing defenses. So now the, you know, now the, the challenge is making sure that we can complement him with the, with the right assortment of guys. And that was what led us in, in, in some ways to, you know, picking up Mikey Schlosser there in the second round of the entry draft because we wanted a guy who, could just, you know, kind of automatically draw a slide. And I think Mikey gives us that. And then again, that'll kind of pave the way for how we approach some of this college draft stuff here as well. But uh, but no, I, I think Ryan Brown is a, a plug and play guy. I, I think he's going to be a huge part of the future of the Water Dogs and we're fired up to have him. The Water Dogs hoping that Ryan Brown can add another dimension here to this offensive attack. He joins McCardle, Ben Reeves, Westberg, Christian Cruchinello, and your first-round selection last season, Michael Krause, who returns after opting to play in the MLL last season. Now, you added Brown ahead of the expansion draft with the expectation that you were probably going to lose at least one of those attackmen that you left unprotected. But that, but at the end of the day, the only one you actually lost was Ryan Drenner, a guy that you picked up ahead of last season. But you lose Drenner, face-off man Drew Stimno, who played a big role in the one-two punch that you guys were able to bring at the face-off X. And then veteran defenseman Brody Merrill, who was very important to that defensive unit a year ago. You told Lacrosse Flash Editor-in-Chief Austin Owens right before this year's expansion draft that leaving Merrill unprotected was more of a calculated risk, taking his age, the unknown Canadian quarantine measures into account with the hope to hopefully, you know, get him back. But you lose those three guys. And from what we've heard from Coach Quirk, it looks like he would have uh, been grabbing some more water dogs if he had that opportunity. You've already made a few moves here this offseason along with adding Brown. But what's the plan in replacing the losses of Simino and Merrill? Sure. I mean, we, we, we lost three great players and great people, no doubt about it. You know, I, I knew going into it that the Cannons were only able to select three. So there was maybe a little bit of, you know, kind of poker being played there. And, and 
was very fortunate that we had Reeves and Kraus bounce back to us. I, 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 I went in thinking that I was probably going to lose one of those two lefties and to get them both back, we'll, we'll certainly take it. Um, you know, again, Drenner is, is a great lacrosse player, but, you know, kind of I, I, I had known that we'd kind of had the Brownie trade, you know, kind of doctored up there. So felt felt OK about that. And then Brody certainly is as a you know what he's had a close to 20 year professional career. I mean, he's 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 the greatest of all time. And I don't I don't I don't use that lightly whatsoever. Uh, just again, that was a that was a crossing the border situation and knowing Brody has, you know, kids and a family back at home, like what was the likelihood and his availability going to be this summer? And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that we, we, we still have clear, clear answers to some of those questions. So um, we went into the entry draft, understanding that there were certainly huge fill uh, shoes to fill in Brody's absence, but uh, we feel really good about the two defensemen we were able to get there and Liam Burns and Ben Randall. So, um, you know, everybody talks about kind of the departure of Brody, but from my end also, you know, we lost Noah Richard too, who were able to keep on our team through the military exemption, but Noah Richard was a huge part of, uh, of our defense last year. So we had to replace both Brody and Noah. Uh, and that's, that's hence why we grabbed Liam and, uh, and, and Ben both. And, you know, again, uh, you know, is it a, is it a one for one trade? I don't really know, but we feel like we lost a couple of good defensemen and we gained a couple of defensemen and we got to, you know, we'll have to rebuild and develop some chemistry there, but I, I think we'll be able to do so. Liam Burns and Ben Randall drafted by coach Copeland in the entry draft to help bulk up on the defensive end. And then short stick defensive midi Matt Witcher brought in as well through the waivers to add some depth with Kyle McClancy and Steven DiNapoli. And then along with Brown, the other big addition that you made this offseason, you brought it up before bringing in midfielder Mikey Schlosser, jack of all trades, as Jordan Johnson called him after the entry draft. You, re you reunite him with your first overall selection in last year's entry draft, Zach Courier. We here at Flash, we're particularly excited to see what Schlosser is able to do on the shortened field. But what do you expect Schlosser to bring to this team, especially when it comes to the offensive end and in transition? Uh, first of all, he's an unbelievable guy. I actually just hung up with with Coach Kevin Conry at Michigan not too long ago, who had the privilege of coaching, uh, you know, Mikey during some of his collegiate days, and um, just an unbelievable reputation in terms of you know what he brings and some of the intangibles that he'll add to the locker room. So that was a huge part of it. And then two, uh, just felt like he was one of the more dynamic midfielders available in terms of, I mean, obviously his speed and his two handedness, but he plays with no ego. Like he goes by people and then he throws the ball to the right person. He's not a super high risk, high reward kind of guy. I, I just think he has a real efficiency to him. And, you know, I'd kind of equate it to that whole like second assist, um, you know, kind of hockey analogy where he just can, can kickstart things and kind of be your, your party starter on offense there and then let guys play on the backside. But, he, uh, you know, he gets in the hole. He can play defense. He, he, you know, obviously great in between the arcs. But uh, I, I, I just think Mikey has played with certainly Courier, and then you know, again, Drew Snyder was a part of that. You know, that franchise there for a number of years. So hopefully, there will be some ingrained chemistries already in place, and we can just build off of those. Schlosser, a big add to join this Water Dogs team and midfield in 2021, joining the likes of, as you said, Drew Snyder and then fellow Canadians, Zach Currier, Ben McIntosh, Westberg, Jake Withers, and all-world LSM, Ryland Reese. Coach, I just talked to Ryland like a week ago for this show. He says his plan is to stay in the States if the quarantine measures in Canada are still in effect come the summer. We brought that up just a little while ago. But in terms of the other Canadians on your roster, what should we be expecting as we get closer and closer to the weekend of June 4th? 
I, I think they all have similar plans where if the, the quarantine uh, measures are not lifted, I think they're all planning on hunkering in here for the duration of the summer uh, and throughout the fall and uh, as long as they need to. But they're certainly making the PLL and the water dogs a priority. So I, I will, you know, I, I appreciate that a whole lot for those guys. We should be hearing much more over the next two weeks or so as as or two months, I should say, as to uh, what Canadian guys will be doing or what they will be doing with the uh, with the season approaching. Obviously, very important uh, for you um, as you prepare for this season with a handful of Canadians on your roster. Let's move on to this college draft. You have the second most prized selection at this uh, for this upcoming draft. You'll be picking after Atlas head coach Ben Rubier at the top of the draft. And my God, the talent that will be available specifically to, to the two of you with the uh, first and second overall pick. If you want to go attack, there are a ton of them. There's also a few notable polls that we will be watching as the first few picks unfold. And then you only have one face-off specialist as of right now. Arguably, one of the best to ever do it should be available to, uh, to you at number two overall. If you talented midfielders that can play in the middle of the field as well. And then you also consider the fact that, yes, you did recently move that second-round pick. So after the selection at two, you won't pick again until 18. So I won't put it past you to move back in the first round, obviously, being a possibility, get some more draft capital. Some scenarios obviously being thrown around primarily by myself, but we will wait and see uh, how the draft unfolds. One week until this draft, Coach, what's the plan heading into it? Uh, well, I, everything that you said is very accurate. There are a lot of kind of side conversations that have been, that have been going on for quite some time. So whether or not we uh, we stay firm or we or we pull the trigger and, you know, move around a little bit is still TBD. But, um, you know, it would have to be a pretty hefty asking price for us to, to, to trade down. I think uh, you have some pretty special attackmen in particular, you know, I know, you know, Paul or Paul Clark, uh, you know, kind of just did something on social media the other day, but you know, between Sowers and Teat and Bernhardt, you got, you got three, you know, kind of a plus candidates there. So uh, part of this all the way along was to, you know, try to target, you know, one of those guys, um, you know, again, that goes back to the acquisition there of, uh, of Ryan Brown and making sure we're able to complement him with the right pieces. So uh, that at least, you know, kind of today is, uh, is kind of the thought process. But again, you know, we got a little bit of time here and some more, some more conversations to take place. Definitely can't go wrong with any of those three names. Obviously, some polls available, some face-off guys available that we are watching as well. But cannot go wrong with either of those three names. But we did get something important there. It is not for certain that Coach Copeland's staying here at two. He might be moving down. We will see over the next uh, couple days, really, as we are now just under a week uh, from the college draft. The 2021 season right around the corner, just over a month away. But we do have this college draft first next Monday night, April 26th on Peacock for everyone watching or listening, make sure to tune in as Coach Copeland holds the second overall pick and will be adding another talented player to his roster heading into training camp and the 2021 season. Coach, I want to thank you so much for coming on and joining me today. Before I let you go, Matt DeLuca and Charlie Cipriano, currently the two names you have on the roster to play goalie. We saw DeLuca relieve Cipriano towards the end of last year's tournament. What's the outlook right now on your team's goalie situation? Well, we continue to have two that the two that we like. I mean, I know there's kind of a narrative out there that, you know, I think we finished, you know, last in save percentage at like 53 or 54. So people were just like, like, you know, assuming that we were going to try to go ahead and enhance that position. And, you know, again, there are still some kind of side conversations that are taking place. In my utopian world, we'd kind of add a third goalie to the roster to try to get, you know, some real goalie competition up at camp. But I, I, I really do like the, the, the two that we have right now. I mean, I think 
Matt DeLuca in two games and change, I think, was right around 59%. And Charlie Cipriano in the first couple, I thought, played very well and then was dealt a, a, an unfortunate rib injury that he tried to play through. But, you know, I, I know and he knows he said certainly wasn't him at his best. So um, I, I continue to feel really good about the two that we have. But, you know, look, any any coach and kind of GM's responsibility is to try to try to get the best guys that, that we possibly can. So we uh, if there's an opportunity for us to enhance any any area on our roster, we're going to take advantage and try to do so. Cipriano, a guy that you coached at the college level at Fairfield, now getting a chance to coach him at the pro level. And then DeLuca, your second round selection in last year's college draft. Coach Copeland, thank you so much for joining me here on GLE. The head coach of the Water Dogs Lacrosse Club, we're very excited to see what you do with that number two overall selection in this college draft, as well as what you do at 18 and 27 with one week uh, of the or with one week to go. Uh, to the 2021 PLL College Draft and then week one right around the corner. Coach Copeland, thank you again. Hope to talk to you very soon. Very good. Thanks for your time, Ryan. Always good to be with you. All right, everyone, that is going to do it for our ninth show here of Goal Line Extended. I want to thank you all for watching and or listening. If you are not already, make sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube as well as on whatever podcast platform that you use. Search up Goal Line Extended and you should be able to find it. You can also head on over to the Lacrosse Flash website, lacrosseflash.com. All of our podcasts are there as well as stories and articles covering all the latest news, including Dan Arestia's college draft big board you can also follow goal on extended on instagram and twitter at gl extended all the links that you will need will be in the description of the video or podcast that you are viewing or listening to right now we will be back on friday to look ahead to the weekend slate of college lacrosse games we'll be looking ahead to the pll college draft on monday and then interviews with two pll head coach uh, head coaches check out gl extended on twitter for more make sure to follow and subscribe to that and uh so you don't miss the show i hope you all have an incredible week and we will see you on Friday. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at GL Extended and subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast outlets. You can find Lacrosse Flash on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and online at lacrosseflash.com.